You've been playing cricket. (laughs) It's a great thing to play cricket. I know they love it in Australia, so get that. But wow, you're a singer. I was actually a rubbish cricket player, just to say. (laughs) Well, the good news is you're not a rubbish singer. You're an amazing singer. That was beyond. I don't think you can be a rubbish cricket player and play for your country. If you play for Zimbabwe, you can. No, (laughs) you got got that. You're underplaying this thing. Now, it's amazing, Henry, because normally as an international player or even a first-class player who's been in the game for a long time, thoughts after cricket normally turn towards either coaching or commentating or going into the business world. But it's quite remarkable that you've gone completely different and decided when I'm finished with this game, which sadly was a bit premature, but when I'm done here... I'm actually going to be singing. Um, it's, it must be wonderful that you are able to follow your dream. And I guess what took you so long before you auditioned for The Voice? Because it, the, the, the show that you're on is aptly named because you really are The Voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're very kind. Well, Dean, um, as you rightly pointed out, there are many paths you can take when cricket ends. And I tried some of them. And, you know, they just didn't fly with me. So I did try um, I did try cricket commentary. And, um, of course, cricket commentary is one of those things that's quite hard to break into oh, yes. because there's so many good retired cricketers who are good at speaking and had been doing it for a while. And, uh, you, you know, you, you're either going to unseat someone or wait for them to die. and uh, Or you're going to join another television channel that... that that kind of comes up on the scene. So there was really, um, there were really limited options for me. Once I decided I didn't want to carry on playing cricket, which came early on in peace. Um, I was involved with a club called Lashings World Eleven for nine or so years from 2003 when I retired all the way through to about 2012. But in any case, um, having been with them for, for that long, I kind of decided that playing cricket wasn't for me and, and that, in essence, commentary wasn't for me. But but singing had always been in the background, mate. I'd always been uh, singing from high school all the way up. Even through my cricket career, I was singing at various uh, functions. And, and, and I, whenever I'd come home to Zimbabwe, uh, you know, I would get the opportunity to sing when I was invited to various places. So singing never ended. It never stopped for me. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've actually been quite active in that space for now close on uh, 20-something years. You know, I started singing in 1990 was my first principal part in a play. So it's actually going on 29 years almost now. And uh, so, you know, it was was something like, gosh, what was I? I was was in form uh, form two when I got that part. So um, that laid the foundation. And actually before going into test cricket, I got a, an invitation or, or an offer of a scholarship to go to 
London and study music and drama at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And so, um, you know, that was a big opportunity. But what happened was cricket came along and I ended up going into the world of cricket and never uh, looking back for eight or so seasons that I was playing cricket. And then um, when I went to England and got there, I, I, I ended up obviously um, having more freedom to do what I wanted. And then music started to come more and more to the fore. I released an album in 2006 called Aurelia, which was effectively an album saying, here's me uh, revealing to the world that I'm, I'm now in a different space. You can still find it online. You know, it's, it's on iTunes and various places, uh, various streaming services like Spotify. I did release music. It just wasn't um, it wasn't well received by by the public who either didn't know it was there or I didn't have the the money to promote it, etc. Britain's Got Talent and all those kinds of shows. A lot of people came up to me and said, "Hey, have you thought of doing this? Have you, you know, why don't you go and sing on this show or that show?" And I kept, I kept saying to people, "It's not really my scene. I'm, you know, I don't really want to be on this on this reality TV bandwagon." Um, when the Voice approached, I said that the Voice is one show I have had more respect for than any of the others because the Voice uh, doesn't try to embarrass you in a sense. They you know, the other shows that love people to, to play the fool, and, and the voice isn't really like that. So, you know, ultimately, um, I decided to give it a go because I'm not getting any younger. Uh, I auditioned. I, you know, you've got to go through various qualification processes right. to, to ensure that, uh, that you, you, you know, you get through each stage. There are many stages. They have to get the numbers down from 5,000 people to 100 for the blinds. Goodness me. At the end of the day... Mate, I, I'm 42, turning 43 this year, and, and these sorts of things come, and if you let them pass you by, you'll end up 60 thinking, you know, when I was 42, why didn't I do that? So life is fleeting. You get opportunities to do things maybe once or twice. If you turn them down, you might miss your moment. So hence the reason why I ended up going with it. Well, we're very happy to, to hear that you're doing it. H, finally, your, your talent has been discovered and, and now will be nurtured by the correct coaches as well. And I, I believe that uh, you're never too old to do anything. There's always the right time and the right place for it to happen. And this is clearly yours. When you did the blind auditions, um, you said that it is uh, a pretty, you know, it's not such a big deal playing cricket for Zimbabwe uh, because they weren't necessarily the greatest team, which uh, if people misconstrued that could certainly have a few hackles rising and so on. Do you perhaps just want to clarify what you meant when, when, you, when you spoke about that? Okay. So the first thing I said was um, I was actually a rubbish cricketer. That was... Referring to, referring to myself. 
Um, I think what's happened is some people have conflated that and thought I said Zimbabwe cricketers were rubbish. That's the first clarification. I, I've been on uh, Twitter and Facebook and people are misquoting and you know, misrepresenting what I said. But just, just for a start, now when someone says that uh, here in the West, um, people don't freak out and get all sensitive about it because they understand one of two things. Either what he's saying is true and he totally believes it, or what he's saying might be hyperbolic. Now, hyperbolic language is an exaggeration in which you're using tongue-in-cheek. Um, tongue-in-cheek is kind of a certain irony. So if you hear someone who's played test cricket, who's got... Uh, I don't know if I still have the best one-day international fitness for Zimbabwe, but I certainly... Six, know, six for 19 against England, I would say so. Yep. Six for 19 against England. Um, I played in a test series in which I was man of the match in Pakistan. One, we won that series uh, on the strength of the first test, which we won. Uh, on and the, the rest of the series was fogged off in '98. Yes. Um, you know, we got through the series six stage of the World Cup. So the statement couldn't possibly be true because I wasn't actually that rubbish. I, I, I was inconsistent, but I was good enough to play against good players and have success against them. I wasn't the best player by any stretch, and I wasn't a first choice pick either. But even I understand that I wasn't rubbish. So if I'm saying it, it must have been a joke, right? I mean, it must have been, I, unless um, I truly believe that. I mean, if, if I'd been born and bred and raised in any of the other countries, I don't think I would have played test cricket. I don't think I was good enough. And we also have a small pool of players. When I was playing, we had about 20 or so players that you could classify as, as world class. I mean, you go to any other country, there's a thousand. So I was kind of making a play of that. I wasn't actually saying that they're useless. And I wasn't certainly commenting on our current state of play. And, 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 you know, the truth is we're not at this World Cup. And I wasn't having a go at that. You know, all, all the banter there was about myself. It wasn't, you know, it get everyone else. When I said that, I think most people in this country got it. Um, I haven't heard any kind of uproar from any other people group apart from Zimbabweans mm -hmm. who are just, you know, up in arms saying it was insensitive and I insulted the team. I, you know, come on, you know. <laughs> I've got a gross sense of humor, you know. I've got a better sense of humor than a lot of people have had an easy life, you know. It's really ironic. I can laugh about these things and I can smile and joke about them. But I've got nation in uproar because I said I'm a rubbish cricketer and that it's easy to get into the cricket side. Okay, H, so let's actually talk about the game and put all of that uh, firmly behind us. The 1999 World Cup was... Uh, in England. It was an incredibly special World Cup for Zimbabwe because they did remarkably well and now 20 years later it's back in England again. What are your fondest yep. memories yep. of that World Cup in 1999? There must have been quite a few I would imagine. Well I think the fondest memory is uh, all those wickets that I took in the match against India at Grace Road. Uh, India were cruising, they needed something like eight runs in the last over. Well in fact going two overs and, and uh, Alistair Campbell walks up to me and gave me the ball and I had a bad first spell. The Indian crowd were just abusing me all the time, constantly from the boundary. In fact, they were saying, bring back on longer and the game will go on no longer. You know? <laughs> it was just really, really launching into me. Um, and, and so when Alistair Campbell ca came and gave me the ball, uh, Alistair said to me, uh, you know, this is your, basically this is what you're paid to do. This is your moment. And Stuart Carlisle said something similar. And I took three wickets in four balls. A longer bowling to the last man, Prasad. Big appeal for Abu He's out. He's out. And Zimbabwe have won by three runs. 
Umpire Peter Willey raises the finger. Prasad out first ball with one over to go. Henry Alonga has taken three wickets in this over. A big gamble by Alistair Campbell because Alonga had bowled like a drain earlier. A lot of wides. He looked overawed by the occasion. He's coming here now. He's taken three wickets in this over. Sensational win for Zimbabwe. Tremendous victory. Um, tremendous memories. And then we beat South Africa, which was an extraordinary achievement for us because they were, they were up there with, in the top two favourites. We beat them at Chelmsford in Essex, and uh, it was a tremendous, tremendous uh, team effort. Uh, I contributed with a wicket at the end, Alan Donald, um, and uh, I also took a catch to dismiss Daryl uh, Cullinan. Yes, very Neil Johnson catch. played a starring role. Yeah. Uh, he uh, took three wickets, I think, and he also scored a decent number of runs, something like 70 or 80. Yeah. And we just, you know, we just kept taking wickets. If I remember, a beautiful diving catch by Andy Whittle to dismiss Steve Elworthy. Um, John T. Rhodes, there was a run out between um, John T. Rhodes and Herschel Gibbs. Uh, and then uh, John T. was about LBW to Heat Street. Because um, I mean, some of these uh, memories may be false memories, but I think that's what kind it's of the, the way things went. It's all and correct. And we just kept getting wickets. And of course, of course, Zulu, uh, Lord Kuzner came in at the end and he could still have won it for them. But then, um, you know, we got them to sweep ends and I bowled to Donald and we got our final wicket and they never got close to our total, if I'm not mistaken. But um, it, was, it was just a great, a great day. And, you know, my most endearing memory, mate, uh, the, it's the proudest moment I've been as a Zimbabwean person, you know, was, was standing on the balcony of the, uh, of the change rooms at Chelmsford and 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 whole crowd. There was a sea of red. All the Zimbabwean fans came down to the to to, to ground level. Uh, came up all the way up to the change room. Not 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 on top on our level, but they were singing up to us. And they were singing Zim Zim Zimbabwe. And they were singing Super Sticks. Because <laughs> I think after that match, we effectively had qualified. And uh, it, oh mate, it was such a special special moment. Um, the kind of stuff that sort of goes to the grave with you and explaining how special that was for a little minnow team like us who didn't have superstars. You know, when I say superstars, I'm not, I'm not disparaging Johnson, Streak, Flower, Flower, extra, I'm, or Murray Goodwin. I'm just saying, you know, we, we were a bits and pieces team yeah. uh, that didn't always have a match winner that could just knock us all the way through to a victory. We had we all had to chip in. Every single person had to do their little bit, and we were able to upset giants. Um, we didn't have a Shane Warne who could just bowl through a side, or Glenn McGrath, you know, or a Mark Waugh who could, or Steve Waugh who could score hundreds for breakfast. We were a side that really needed to put it all together on the day. And that's that's definitely my best memory, uh, second to India. Um, and, and of course, um, just just the way we conducted ourselves throughout the whole tournament. Unfortunately for us, had we scored another 30 runs at any point up and, you know, into the Super Sixes, we might have gone through to the, uh, the next round. I don't know if it was the quarters. I think it was the quarterfinals, yes. We were that close. We were that close. We were that close. But, uh, I remember landing back in Zimbabwe, a hero, and uh, uh, just the whole nation embracing us, loving us. Oh, how things have changed! Uh, and it seemed to. I can't go anywhere without. I can't go anywhere on the internet without being called all sorts of names. 
Yeah, it's, uh, most of them I'm hoping will be very, very good names. But it, it, it also seemed just to improve your bowling dramatically because then in the series against Sri Lanka, which followed in, in Zimbabwe, his streak had a horrific knee injury. So you had to carry the bowling attack through three test matches and five one-day internationals. And you also bowled very well against South Africa when Zimbabwe beat them for a second time in Durban in 2000. And, and suddenly it all came together. You were very good with the new ball, getting the ball to move away from the opening batsman. But then more importantly, at the back end of the innings, your Yorkers were spot on, reverse swinging Yorkers at real and genuine pace. Would you put that down to the way that you came along in leaps and bounds in that 99 World Cup? Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm, I think, Dean, I've always been a bit of a weird person in that I really, you know, I really need to click with you as a person if you're my coach. And, and I had this one coach, and I must mention this man because he's been a very special man in my life, but I had a coach called Atherton Squire. He was my athletics coach. I clicked with him, and I was breaking all sorts of records at school. He left the school, and I never clicked with anyone else, and I was never as good as a, in athletics. Um, so generally, whenever I've been mentored well or coached well, I've done exceptionally well. The guy I did really well with was, 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 was Casey. Um, um, Kevin Curran. Kevin so I was really sad when I heard that he passed away. But but I really got on with KC. He really just made it simple for me. In any case, um, you're very kind in suggesting that I carried the attack for a few seasons or a few, you know, one season or two, whatever. He had his knee injury. Um, but that would be a very high praise, and I don't accept it. I, I just think that I was maturing as a as a bowler by then. I was trying to figure out my, my own game. And, and it does take a while for any bowler to figure out who they are. Yes. And, yes. Um, you know, I had I had a, a couple of, you know, good series here and there. And uh, yeah, the saddest uh, thing for me, of course, is after the Black Armband protest or, or, or during that World Cup of 2003, um, I was actually bowling pretty well. I was, I was actually at the top of bowling as well as I bowled in 98 which is when I, you know, had a couple of good series. I obviously did well in Zimbabwe against India, taking five in the first innings. I went to Sharjah, did well there in the second match or that we played India, and then Sachin went ballistic in the final. Yeah. But but that, and then we went to Pakistan after that, and that's when we won that series. So I had three tournaments in which I was a match winner, you know, a genuine match winner. And I felt I had that back in 2003, but of course... As everyone does in the whole world, whole world knows now, uh, politics took over. I, I did this protest and, of course, um, changed the course of my life. I don't have any regrets. I'm just saying it's just really sad that they left me out of side for most of that tournament when I was at my best. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I don't think anybody really knew why you weren't playing in the, in the 2003 World Cup. You eventually came back to play against Kenya and Bloemfontein. Uh, and a few of the Super 6 games. But then yeah. then your life changed forever. We were out by then. Yeah, we were done and dusted. Yeah, I, no, I only, played, I only played against Kenya. And that was the, the, that was... So I played the first match against Namibia, did the protest, and that was my last match until Kenya. And then off I went into, into exile. So... Um, HR, and here, I, I, here we are, 15 or so years later. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I'm not going to really dwell too much on the exile side of things, but I want to talk about resilience, which is something that you've always seemed to have. Uh, you may say that, that you, perhaps you didn't, but um, back in 1995, you couldn't have got off to the 
Well, it was a, a real bittersweet symphony, wasn't it? Your first test match for the country. You were at that time the fastest bowler in Zimbabwe at the age of 18 years old. Zimbabwe batted first, made 544 for four declared. They give you the ball. Andy Flower gives you the ball, the, the ball and says, basically, H, you got the keys to the city. Run in and bowl quickly and take wickets. And with your third delivery in test cricket, that's exactly what you did. You got the wicket aside, Anwar caught behind, and everything was going nicely. Yep. And the next thing, you get called for, well, because of the bent elbow, which would have meant that you were throwing. So suddenly, in, in a space of 24 hours, you have incredible emotions from, I would imagine, being on top of the world to feeling, what on earth am I actually even doing here? How did you able to overcome all of that? Well, I think the first thing you realize is you're still alive. And while you're still alive, you're still breathing, you, you can change your future. And I think that's the start of resilience, is an understanding that whatever's happened to you couldn't possibly be the worst thing that could happen to you. Because the worst thing that could happen is you die and you're out of here, and you don't have a chance to rewrite the story. And so I knew that while I still had breath and while I still had the option, and, you know, the cricket authorities still believed in me. So back in the day, Zimbabwe cricket still believed in me. The ICC did as well. So they sent me to three academies over three years. I went to um, India in 95. 96, I came here to Australia. And 97, I went to the Blascoe Cricket Academy in Johannesburg, yeah. South Africa. So I worked with great people in the sport with technical excellence who were able to help me understand why I was going wrong and how to fix it. I just don't think we had the excellence in Zimbabwe. And uh, that's not a, you know, it's not a disgrace for Zimbabwe. We just went there. We didn't have a, a really well-established cricket fraternity that had biomechanist specialists, that sort of thing, you know, uh, people who know the, the movement of the body and how things are going wrong, etc. Mm -hmm. But they had them in all these other countries. Yeah. And I worked with Dennis Lilly and Bill Garner and Rod Marsh and various people all over the world and Clive Rice in South Africa. And they got me back. And, and, and look, there, there were hard times. It was very embarrassing back then when you got called for throwing as well. Um, nowadays, they, 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 they even have a different name for it. They call it a suspect action. Yeah, that's right. But back then they called you a, ch they called you a chaka, they, you know. And it, 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 in essence, it was the Pakistan players who put pressure on Ian Robinson, and many people remember Ian, uh, the umpire. Um, and uh, uh, look, would he have called me if they hadn't put pressure? I don't know. Um, but in essence, uh, I'm not one of those people who will have power grapes about being called because I think when I saw the replay, I, I, I saw that there was a problem. You know, I've seen, I saw the replay with Dennis Lilly, and, and yeah, you know, I had a bit of a bend. I don't know if it was illegal according to today's standards. Today they give you. Uh, what, what do they give you? 15 degrees? Something like that? Oh, I, I'm not yes. sure what they yeah. give you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was kind of a challenge, an internal challenge, that I wanted to finish well, even if I started badly. That's my life's motto. That's how I live. Because we're all going to have clangers, right? We're all going to fail. We're all going to stuff up in life. I don't know. Unless you're the perfect person who's, you know, most perfect person who's ever lived, who doesn't mess up. We're all going to have moments where we go, gosh, I got that wrong, you know. But I, I want to be brave in my life. I want to go put myself out there and try things that others are afraid to do and live a life that is a life of substance where although I'm taking the risky path, I'm taking the path that's the most fulfilling because at the end of the day, I'm choosing a path that isn't necessarily easy but is the right path because it makes a difference. 
And so that's what the black armband was all about. It was about trying to make a difference. I can be misunderstood for it. That was part of the risk. Um, but I'll stand by it. Um, going on the voice, I, I might stuff up here, you know, but heck, it's, it's much, a much nicer life. It's a life lived worthy of risk than one that is risk averse. When we uh, sit on our couch, our couches and we, we, you know, eat our popcorn and criticize all these players and criticize people like me, that's the easy route, you know. It's easy to be a critic, but to actually get out there, get involved in the game, whatever that game is, whether it's music or sport or politics or whatever tickles your fancy, and get your hands dirty and fall and, and fail and stuff up and then get up as the sound goes, dust yourself off and start all over again. Yeah. I think that's where we find our passions and that's where we feel alive. I know it sounds weird to the majority of people after my comments, but I'm a very proud Zimbabwean. You know, I'm not Zimbabwean anymore technically because I've got British citizenship. But, you know, that's not my choice. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote in my book the many things I've done. I've sort of played for my country. I had operations to keep playing. Just like Heath, the many of us who had to keep playing through a lot of pain. We bled for the country, literally broken bones and fingers. Uh, we traveled. We left family behind to go and represent our country. Yes, people say it's an honor to play for your country, but, you know, it's tough. We, you know, being hammered in, in various countries like India, getting beaten by sides that are better than you. I wrote the song, I was in Zimbabwe, 2001. Um, I, I did this political protest in which I felt I was standing up for the disenfranchised little man in Zimbabwe, trying to be an ambassador for the country that raised me. And, and I'm going to keep doing that, come what may, even though there may be opposition. 